John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Hello, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, we'll be continuing our read through of the Library of America's anthology of Civil War um, writings. So we're not looking at a specific author. We're not looking at uh, even one genre of writing. Um, just a big collection, four volume collection of Civil War writings from various people, diverse, different points of view. So this is just going to be our effort to a chance to kind of sit back and think about the American Civil War from many different points of view as 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 we can um and hopefully hopefully learn some stuff and hopefully uh kind of get some new perspectives on things um this kind of central event in american history um so the first episode we looked at lincoln and the secession fear and the lincoln's election i, I mean and how that led to the secession fear in the last episode we looked at the beginning of secession itself uh, with the secession of South Carolina and other deep southern states. And today we're going to really get to the start of the war, um, particularly the attack on Fort Sumter and the beginning of the war. And this will kind of lead us into the, into the, the war, the, the, the enthusiasm for the war in the next episode. Um, so what do we have here? We got uh, 16 documents. Um, Basically, they all sort of center around Fort Sumter at the end. Um, but we start in a very good place. I know I'm just breaking this up at 100 pages, chunks. But we actually start in a really good place. We start with Lincoln's first inaugural address. Uh, this is sort of overshadowed by the second inaugural address, which is much shorter, much more, you know, coming after as the conflict's winding down and coming after, you know, Lincoln was, to his surprise, reelected. Uh, ensuring the end of the war and the end of slavery. So it it's a very different type of document and therefore more important historic. I think it's on it's in the Lincoln Memorial, right, along with the Gettysburg Address. The first inaugural is Lincoln trying to be a moderate, trying to prevent secession. And of course, remember, the southern states seceded before um, Lincoln even was inaugurated. Some of them anyways, not, the, not Virginia and Tennessee and those states, but like South Carolina and Georgia and Texas, Florida, they seceded before um, before Lincoln's inauguration. But this is still him trying to be a moderate, trying to, I, I don't want to use the word appease, but trying to reassert what he'd been saying throughout the campaign. And ever since he's been, he was elected, that, you know, he is not going to really antagonize the South, right? So there's a lot of moderate here, right? So he, he, a lot of moderate positions he puts forth, such as the equality of the sections, the equality of the states. It's interesting he uses the word equality of the sections because there's so much focus on like the states' rights question. Um, and of course, that was the justification we see in a lot of the documents about secession is the Constitution was a compact between equal states. And there's, you know, some case to be made for that. There's also the case to be made that it was an, un, you know, irrevocable really the the, the 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 states are too intertwined they're not really separate entities anymore but whatever but lincoln actually throws in the equality of the sections here which is 
a bit interesting to me because no, you can't make a constitutional argument that there's any idea of the equality of the sections. Only if you kind of see things like the Great Compromise as sectional compromises, but even that, there's nothing in the text that says, you know, the sections are equal too. But but Lincoln throws that in as well, kind of showing just how divided the country was along regional lines. Um, he also says, okay, yes, it's the federal government's duty to defend the fugitive slave law. I don't think he gets into the states because, of course, a lot. One of the justifications for secession was that states were nullifying the fugitive slave law by not enforcing it, or even passing laws saying they're not going to enforce it. Um, I don't think Lincoln really says those states were wrong to do that. He's more talking about just the federal government's role, which is his job, right? As president, so he's saying, yes, the fugitive slave law is law. We'll defend it. Um, but at the same time, he, from the other side, he says the government is unitary. There isn't, you can't, you know, secession isn't legal. Uh, he talks about government functions that will continue. So a lot of just, you know, in this crisis, the mail will still be delivered. Uh, forts will still be manned. So, you know, there's that, that kind of unity of unity of government and the continuation of government functions is, of course, a big function is a big part of this speech. Um, and he even talks about the constitutional revisions, the, the compromise we talked about last time, the compromise that would have basically guaranteed slavery's uh, being written into the Constitution and defended in the Constitution. Lincoln talks about his openness to those constitutional revisions. So he's, he's trying to put everything on the table to um, tell the southern states you don't have to secede, right? You're, there's nothing you need to be afraid of. Um, but on the other hand, he also talks about democracy here in, in pretty interesting ways. Basically saying, you know, it, you're, this is a minority revolution. Um, although we'll get to the question of revolution later, because maybe that's the wrong word, because he definitely addresses revolution later on. He says, from the questions of this class spring all our constitutional controversies, and we divide them up into majorities and minorities. If the minority will not acquiesce, the majority must, or the government must cease. There is no other alternative for continuing the government is acquiescence on one side or the other. If a minority in such a case will secede rather than acquiesce, they make a precedent which in turn will divide and ruin them all. For a minority of their own will secede from them whenever a majority refuses to be controlled by such minority. End quote. So, uh, of course, you have in the Federalist Papers this idea of a, a, a large democracy or a large republic working because... You're not going to have a strict majority and minority. You're going to have a lot of different interest groups that will maybe coalesce around certain issues, and that will there's some fluidity there. Um, that's probably seen as a not likely. You know that it's kind of a wishful thinking by the time of, of by the by 1961, 1861. I mean, and certainly now. But this idea that democracy only works if minorities are willing to acquiesce to majority will, right? That's that's kind of the point he's making. So if you want, if you ever, if you want to talk democracy, fine. But you're always going to have a minority that's going to not have their interests met. And if they throw a temper tantrum every time and secede every time they don't get their wish, you're not going to have a democracy. It's just, you're just going to have another minority on another issue that's going to have to acquiesce. So it's not sustainable, obviously. Which was an argument being thrown around by many of the documents we've already looked at. Uh, he talks about the inability to physically separate, which is, of course, another argument that we've seen uh, against secession. Now, where I think he gets really interesting here, and I didn't notice this the previous times I read this, or I just 
you know, this isn't the most pithy speech Lincoln ever gave. But he, he says, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of going back in the secession controversy and debates. There's a lot of going back to the Declaration of Independence. And this is our right to secede. Even Horace Greeley says, well, they have the Declaration of Independence gives them the right to alter or abolish the form of government. You know, who are we to say they can't? But Lincoln separates that there's constitutional rights and revolutionary rights. And he kind of calls out the South here in, in a really interesting way because the, the South was saying, we have constitutional rights to secede, and we're, we're applying the Declaration of Independence to do that, to, to assert our right to alter or abolish the form of government. And he says, you don't have a constitutional right to do that. The Constitution does not give a right to anywhere for a state to leave. Your right actually does come from the Declaration of Independence, so stop calling it a constitutional right. You know, you're, you're, you're declaring a revolution. And he's kind of egging them on to be honest about it. He says, the country with institutions belongs to the people who inhabit it. Whenever they shall grow weary of existing government, they can exercise their constitutional right of amending it or their revolutionary right to dismember or overthrow it. I cannot be ignorant of the fact that many worthy and patriotic citizens are desirous of having their national constitution amended. While I make no recommendation of the amendments, I fully recognize the rightful authority of the people over the whole subject to be exercised in either of the most prescribed in the instrument itself. So very subtly, he kind of says, yeah, if you want a revolution, that's what you're doing. You're actually doing a, a true revolution. And if you want to talk about your constitutional rights, just amend the Constitution, which is something that was actually being debated at the time. So this leads into his thoughts on the constitutional revision process. So, and specifically the Crichton Compromise. So, of course, it ends with the, the better angels of our nature line, which, of course, is really good and well-remembered. Um, but... Um, what else is in here? Oh, the stuff about the, the, we're going to defend our property or federal property in southern states that, you know, quote unquote, seceded. So anyways, lots of good stuff in the first inaugural. It, it's growing on me as a speech. It's actually in the last couple of years. I've read this a few times now because I did the series on Lincoln before. And I, I keep finding kind of new things in it, even though it is not as, I guess, dramatic and definitive as the second inaugural. It, it has its... It, it has its moments, and there's some interesting stuff going on, especially, I think, with this idea of revolution and constitutional revision or revolutionary revision of a, of a state. Um, okay. So um, next we have uh, Catherine Edmondson, who is um, a, a, a Southern woman in North Carolina. So she's one of our diary, um, our diarists that we're going to look at a, a, quite a lot here. We got... Um, Catherine Edmondson, uh, was it Mary Chestnut? Um, who's the other one? I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. I've been down here. George Templeton Strong will be a more of a Northern voice. So we're going to have some diarists who just sort of provide running commentary on the war from their own point of view. Uh, Catherine Edmondson is, is one of those, um, which I didn't know about this diary before this anthology. Of course, I knew Mary Chestnut and George Templeton Strong, but... I wasn't familiar with this one. This is a short little passage from March 4th, which is speaking about the inauguration of, of the, quote, wretch Abraham Lincoln. Um, and basically, this is mocking Lincoln. It's pretty funny, actually, um, where there's some kind of biblical references and a lot of name-calling about the Republicans and happiness that Jeff Davis is our president, the way she puts it. Here we have... Uh, 
how grateful we should be to, uh, to the long cloak and scotch cap which saved him from the bloody designs of his southern enemies. Well, we have a real splitter and a tall man at the head of our affairs. Ned Bartley is both, and perhaps exceeds Mr. Lincoln in one or both points, but he's not of Anglo-Saxon blood. Neither is Vice President Mr. Hannibal Hamlin, end quote. And of course, there was these rumors that Hamlin was um, bi- biracial floating around. Um, not, not true as far as I know, but, but anyway, so very mocking and, and pretty funny little diary entry. Then we have the cornerstone speech. So this is a big chunk of this whole passage is the cornerstone speech by Alexander Stevens. Um, Alexander Stevens, of course, becomes the vice president of the Confederacy. This was given on March 21st, 1861. And what I like about this speech is its brutal honesty. Um, So how to start this? So this is a speech that's, of course, the audience for the speech is it's early in the formation of the Confederacy, of course. Many of the states had not seceded yet. Those four uh, northern, southern states, Virginia, Tennessee, Alabama, not Alabama, uh, Arkansas. What's the fourth one? Was it North Carolina? I think it was. Um, they didn't secede yet. So that's part of the audience of this speech, are those states that had slave states that hadn't yet seceded. Um, but it's also just a defense of the Confederate Constitution and a defense of a defense of secession, of course, but that's already been a f- done. So he's not going to focus so much on that argument. He's, again, kind of really trying to defend the con- Confederate Constitution, which already has been created by this point. Um, um, so why is it better? Um, and here's where there's, it's brutally honest, I think. And that's why I think this speech is interesting. Of course, the, the, the arguments here are pretty horrible, but... You know, the fact that it, you know, there isn't any equivocation really here. The, some, it's not like this is about states' rights or anything. It's, it's about hair-invoked democracy, to use a more modern term for it. But what he says the Confederate Constitution does is it ends class interests. Um, and it does this by ending the tariff, right? This is kind of a Southern thing that the tariff is like a class interest. It's like, it's a sectional, but also like a class interest. It's like fucking over the farmers is kind of the argument. Of course, a lot of those farmers were big planters who didn't pick up a hoe in their entire life, right? And had slaves do it for them. Um, but specifically because it eliminates the tariff, it's, it's kind of an improvement over the old and it somehow abolishes class interests. Now, of course, you could say, how is this possible in a country built on slavery? Which, of course, the Confederate Constitution also does. It clearly establishes slavery as a founding institution of, of the country. And it's really a kind of Heronvoke democracy idea. And if you don't know, uh, Heronvoke meaning kind of master race democracy. So the idea here is democracy for a particular for a sub a certain group, white men in this case, a, a kind of democratic equality of white men, uh, at least an equality of opportunity, a 19th century version of of equality, not a Marxist kind of 20th century argument about equality. Um, and it's based on white supremacy, a democracy based on white supremacy and, and, and misogyny, I suppose, although that's not really part of the debate here, of course, but we need to remember that Southern institutions also had a fair degree of misogyny, both the systematic rape of black women, um, but the treatment of white women, too, was affected by slavery, right? There's been some really good scholarship about that. 
Um, quote, all under our system stand on the same broad principles of perfect equality, all being white men, of course. So that's where I think this brutal honesty comes forth that I like. Um, now, he goes into some other things that make the Constitution an improvement over the old. So that's essentially what the cornerstone speech is. is it's a, a defense of the Confederate Constitution to states that hadn't yet joined on. Um, so he says there's no Commerce Clause, which, of course, if you know constitutional history at all, the Commerce Clause has been the that part of the Constitution, that one little line that the federal government has been able to use to basically say, since everything is commerce of a sort, you know, basically we can regulate almost anything we want, right? And this is, you know, this was even debated back at the time of like Jefferson and things, right? Like does, do things like internal improvements count as this? And of course now, I th wasn't it the, like the minimum wage debate in the late 19th century, you know? The, 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 the federal government or the Supreme Court, I, I mean, said, you know, if child labor is totally a contractual issue between people, it's not something we can regulate, right? And of course, in the progressive era and later, there was the argument, well, no, this is part of commerce. And so it is something the federal government can regulate. And here Stevens says, no commerce clause. There's no common treasure to improvements. And he spent a lot of time complaining about how the fact that some states put so much money into the common treasury for improvements, but only some states, but only some states benefit from it. It's basically was seen as exploiting certain sections. Now you could look at this where internal improvements were being developed. You know, most railroads were in the north, canals were in the north, although the south was catching up uh, in those things. You know, I don't, I don't know the facts of this, like, how, who, well, how, well, how much states contributed to internal improvements and how much they benefited from. But you can, you can see where he's going with this, that, you know, it's these federal programs, you know, especially things like the railroads spending and, and those kinds of things, went to states that didn't pay for it. And states that did fund their own internal improvements ended up short-ended on this. So is that good? And of course, it's a state's right things because so much of federal power flows through the Commerce Clause. Um, not having it, of course, would shore up states' rights, I suppose. Um, he also says you got cabinet members sitting in Congress in the British system. I didn't know this about the Confederate Constitution, um, although I never really thought about it. Um, you know, like the prime ministers in parliament, right? This idea that the people in the government are in Congress. It's whatever, it's the British system, right? I don't know if it's better or worse, but I, I kind of see the argument here uh, that because the government and the legislative branch and the executive branch aren't disconnected, there's going to be more communication between them and more communication on policy and maybe easier to get stuff done, right? So failure of, you can't just say, well, con like Biden's doing now, you can't just say, oh, Congress is not doing what I want them to do and it's their fault, it's not mine. Well, when you join the two, then it is executive brands has leadership in Congress as well. So that's kind of interesting. I don't know how much of it affected lawmaking in the, in the Confederacy, but, you know, maybe there's some wisdom to that. Of course, in our, this, the Constitution we have now, you can't do both. There's a separation of powers, which means, you know, the Secretary of State can't be in Congress at the time. If they come from Congress, they got to resign. 
maybe that's not a good idea. Maybe there's a case to be made here. He also says it's good we have a six-year term, one-term president, term limits. Of course, the Constitution of the United States at the time didn't have term limits, four-year terms. You know, but then you give them longer to affect their agenda, but only have one term. Um, what else does he say? Uh, then he kind of moves to slavery as the foundation, and he talks about the error, error of equality. After earlier in the speech saying this is rust on equality, obviously he's talking about white men, he then talks about slavery and he says any document that doesn't, isn't a government of, a document of government, uh, fundamental law, uh, that doesn't rest on the inequality of the races is is wrong. And he says there's a natural inferiority there. So here's where also it's very honest, where he's saying, yes, our government is based on, on natural foundations. And he goes on at quite a length here. Um, and our future prosperity will be guaranteed by truth, he says. And that truth is inequality of civilizations and races. Um, he, so then he gets into uh, autonomy of the slave states and the capacity of independence. And here he actually kind of is a con he, he kind of, you see Tom, Tom Paine's old arguments where it's like, we're not small. We're not just a weak colony. We're a continent. And he kind of says the same thing. It's like, our power is here. We just don't see it. And you should. We have this material wealth. And he, remember, he's talking with only, with only half the Confederacy. He's now without Virginia, without North Carolina, without Arkansas and Tennessee. He's saying the South is capable of being an independent state, which, of course, was what Tom Paine said about the U.S., um, I guess, or the, the American colonies at the time. So he's making the same argument. We can, not only can we defend ourselves, we can be a legitimate power in this continent. We can have our own trade, our own navy. Our future is bright. All of that. Um, now, he deals with like Lincoln's moderation here too, and I don't think he denies Lincoln's moderation. I think he even says like Lincoln surprised me at how moderate he was uh, being, and and he actually says, well, this is an opportunity to then then we're not going to there's not going to necessarily be a war over this. Lincoln's it seems maybe he's letting us go as long as we, you know, work this out. And he talks a little about Fort Sumter of being uh, kind of a test case for this. So a lot going on in Alexander Stevens' um, cornerstone speech. And I never read this before. And I was quite shocked to see just, just how honest it was about the racial foundations of the Confederacy. Um, Obviously, you know, I'm, I'm still triggered by people who talk about this as a states' rights issue. Obviously, states' rights were part of the arguments that are being thrown around, but once you scratch under the surface of most of these documents, it's pretty clear they're um, white supremacist foundations to the Confederacy. All right, next, uh, Edward Bates' diary um, from March and April 1861, which, of course, is leading us up to Fort Sumter. Um, so Edward Bates was Lincoln's attorney general at the time. So Bates here predicts wars coming um, and talks about the willingness to, or his willingness to evade, to evacuate, I mean, Fort Sumter to avoid war. And we saw in the last episode how the troops had moved from, uh, was it Fort Millure or something like some other name, 
to Fort Sumter, and it was pretty clear this was going to be a crisis point at the time. Um, and he says, well, maybe we should be willing to evacuate Fort Sumter to avoid war. Um, and of course, this is a really key decision uh, to the people who want to see this Lincoln as an aggressor um, by saying, oh, you didn't evacuate your f federal property. You were the aggressor, right? You were the one starting the war. And when, when the South was taking over federal property throughout the South, all over the place, Fort Sumter was just, you know, a place they did it, you know, with cannons. I guess no one died in that, that, that battle. But, you know, throughout the South, garrisons and bases and forts and things were being taken over all over the place, right? So it's pretty clear who the aggressor was. But nonetheless, if you want to paint uh, Lincoln as an aggressor, it really requires you seeing this unwillingness to evacuate this fort, which is legitimately the property of South Carolina, according to them. But here it's interesting is you got a, a voice in the, in the government saying maybe we should evacuate it to avoid war and something Lincoln's not willing to do. Um, then we have Gideon Wells, uh, and this is a memoir. So we have some memoirs here in this book, which undermines the anthology a little bit. Not much. I don't want to, you know, it's nice that they're there. But it, in the sense, what I like most about this is the day-to-day -day kind of voices, you know, from responding to what's happening right there, right? You know, this is the letter Sherman wrote to his father-in-law, right? while he's still in Louisiana. That's really cool. That's a great document. But the, the sense you have of, of events unfolding and dramatic great events unfolding and people experiencing it uh, and throwing in are things like some from Grant's memoirs and Wells' memoirs and a few others. And I know that's unavoidable for some because you may not have the day-to-day -day recounting of certain events, especially you know, when it's talking about Grant or someone like that. But you do have his great memoirs. And these are good documents so I like that about it, but it does undermine a little bit of the day-to-day. -day. you got people thinking about stuff decades later in some cases. Um, but here we got Gideon Wells' memoirs talking about the events of early, early March. I'm not sure when these memoirs were written. Um, several years after the war, so not decades, but still. It, it's, he's had some time to think about these things. Um, and this is mostly, it's not the most interesting document in, in any case, so maybe I shouldn't worry about it too much. But he does talk about Seward's view on relieving Fort Sumter. Um, so, I, you know, if you buy this, this cabinet of, of, vil, of not villains, of, of, of enemies argument, um, there's, there's obviously true to a certain degree, right, where there are disagreements among the cabinet. And, you know, you got Seward's view on relieving Fort Sumter. Um, you got, you know, it's, you got Gideon Wells talking about a lot of treasonous talk in the capital, which is kind of an interesting thing. Of course, remember, Washington is a southern city in many ways. It was seen as a, it's put in the center as a compromise between north and south, but it's also a compromise between big and small states, between Maryland and Virginia. That's so why I was put there, but it's very much a southern state, right? It had it had slavery, it had the slave trade in Washington, um, so it's very much a southern city. So you do have in Maryland, there was a debate over secession in Maryland. So even though they choose not to, so it's it's really is a, a southern city, and so it's not surprising there's treasonous sentiment in the streets of the capital. 
And just the various feelings of the administration, something we now look on as strength in the Lincoln administration um, was at the time seen as weakness by different voices. And here's one, Gideon Wells, bothered by the, by the numerous voices in the administration. So I think that's just in, interesting how we interpret this now. You know, that I guess you had, who's it? Who wrote that book? The Cabinet Arrivals book. It'll come to me. Goodwin, is that it? Doris Kearns Goodwin, I think. Uh, and it was Kearns something. Um, Goodwin something. Anyways, it was in the movie. The Spielberg movie, too. Even though a lot of characters are botched in that, that movie. But anyways, next, William Stewart. So Stewart was just being mentioned by Gideon Wells. Um, but here we got Stewart, Secretary of State, uh, writing a memo for the president. So this is all kind of coalescing around Fort Sumter. Um, so this is April 1861. Um He's pretty upset about Lincoln, uh, with Lincoln, with about some of his policies. Um, so he wants to defend all the forts. Uh, so I think that's, he thinks Lincoln's being a little waffly here. Um, and, you know, again, this is something in hindsight where you, you think back, obviously Lincoln was a strong wartime president, you know, even if he's being a polit looks politician-y at times, you know, our best president and the right man for the time in many ways. But, you know, of course, time sometimes makes the man. Um, and maybe these events tighten his resolve or whatever. But Stewart here is saying, you know, essentially we should... He's kind of lecturing the president a little bit more. That's kind of surprising, too, in this memo. Um, where he says, like, first, don't stop, don't make this about slavery at all. The public is too racist, basically, and they're not going to fight a war for slavery. So don't make it about slavery. Make it about secession and the Constitution and all that and unity. Um, he says, maintain every fort, like defend every fort. Don't let the South take any of these forts. Um, because what's different about Fort Sumter, I guess? And I, I kind of see Stewart's point here, right? Make them fight for every fort and don't let them all go and then make Fort Sumter the one fort you're going to fight over. It's, it's not a consistent policy. Um, and he actually says we should threaten France and Spain if they even think about recognizing the Confederacy or, or, or intervening in an Indian way. Like we should declare war. He actually says we should threaten war to those states. Um, he says, I would seek an explanation from Great Britain and Russia and send agents into Canada, Mexico, and Central America to rouse a vigorous continental spirit of independence on this continent against European intervention. If satisfactory explanations are not received from Spain and France, would convene Congress and declare war against them. But whatever policy we adopt, there must be an energetic prosecution of it. And I think that's what's bothering Stewart about Lincoln is his uh, apparent kind of weakness on, on these things. Now, the next document we get is Lincoln's response to Stuart in writing. Now, apparently this was never sent because he made it, they just went over to his office or whatever, or Stuart came to his office and they talked about it. So this was never sent, but it's still, so this is probably what Lincoln said in response. 
And he basically says we need some cabinet unity here. Um, and he kind of defends some of his positions. Um, he says, like, I do not perceive how the reinforcement of Fort Sumter would be done on slavery or party issues, while that of Fort Pinkins would be on a more national or patriotic one. Um, what he's saying here is, like, there's nothing about slavery in my defense of Fort Sumter. It's, it's about national unity across the board. Um, but I think some, Stewart's, Stewart's point is still, well, then why not have the same defense of every fort? But. But he also says, like, I told General Stott, Scott to defend Fort Sumter, not to abandon it. So he's kind of saying, I am doing this to a certain degree. Not as much as he wants. Um, but he maybe stresses the need for, for more discipline among the cabinet. You can imagine him being a little frustrated by all the different voices in the cabinet. All right. So next we have uh, Mary Chestnut, her diary from... Uh, from I guess April 7th to 15th. So that takes us through the, through the, the, the fighting for Fort Sumter, of course, which was a little earlier. Um, so we got an eyewitness account to the, uh, the battle of Fort Sumter, if you want to call it that, the attack. Um, you know, and of course, she's a, a southerner, and that's where her loyalties are. But what's good about this document is it's mostly about the social life in Charleston um, and how it sort of goes on, about the rumors of war and the rumblings of war and the news you know, that she gets day to day. That's really cool stuff. She witnesses the attack itself, or at least hears it, um, and sees the, after, the, the consequences of it. And of course, as you know, this wasn't, as a battle, it was, you know, I don't think anyone died in it. It was, you know, cannon fire back and forth, and eventually Anderson surrendered. Um, but, you know, social life goes on. That's what's kind of cool about this is the, the parties go on. There's still parties. There's still, you know, she still goes out every day. So it's, you don't get the feeling of the war that would come. All right, next we have Abner Doubledale's, Abner Doubleday's. Um, perspective on the Battle of Fort Sumter, his personal recollections of the bombardment and all that. Still nothing on baseball, unfortunately. We still have to, that question's still up in the air. Um, but yeah, I, I have to tell you though, I, I, and this may be an issue with this anthology, I'm not feeling these kind of eyewitness that comes to these battles. I know how they might be important for military historians. And you know, I, I much like, I much prefer like the letters and things like that than these kind of diary memoirs of, of battles and things. And there's going to be more of these coming up. I, I just read one from uh, the Battle of Bull Run. And I don't know. Maybe. I'll try. I'll try, I'll try um, to see. Maybe it's just because it's just what happens. It's just, you know, I guess they don't have. They're, they're difficult for me to interpret sometimes, I guess. Or, or they don't seem open to interpretation. They just seem to be uh, accounts of what happened. Maybe they just deserve, maybe they deserve a close reading, though. I'll think about it. Um, but we do get a little of his um, politics here. If I can find the right page. Yeah, here he writes, In aiming the first gun fired against the rebellion, I have no feeling of self-reproach, for I believe, fully believe that the contest was inevitable, and was not our of our seeking. The United States was called not 
upon not only to defend its sovereignty, but its right to exist as a nation. The only alternative was to submit to a powerful oligarchy who was determined to make freedom forever subordinate to slavery. For me, it was simply a contest, politically speaking, as to whether virtue or vice should rule. So that's the good moment in here. But otherwise, it's just his witnessing this, this battle. Um, now we get to, finally, George Templeton Strong, uh, who's writing his diary entries during the Battle of Fort Sumter as well, April 13th to 16th. Of course, he's New York. He's a New Yorker. I think he's a fairly wealthy guy. I don't know much about him. He may have had some small government, local government positions. Was it like the sewer? He like was on the board of the sewer or something like that. He, that's not what he's not an important historical figure. What's important about George Templeton Strong is his diary, right? Which was discovered later. And it's like many, many volumes, right? It's just a massive diary. Um, and it's got some of the more literary reflections on the Civil War that are out there in this genre of diary writings. So he's kind of like Mary Chestnut in that way. Mary Chestnut was a Southerner who reflected on a lot of the events of the war. George Templeton Strong was the same. Neither of these people are like significant historical figures. They're not actors in, in it. They're observers. And, and they're both pretty... They're both pretty fascinating, I guess. And George Templeton Strong is great in this one. Um, so the Civil War begins with the shelling of the fort. And just some hilarious stuff here. He's so witty. Listen to this. Um, it is said the president will assume the right to call for volunteers, whether the law gives it or not. If he does, there will soon be a new element in the fray, namely the stern anti-slavery puritanism that survives in New England and the Northwest. Also, what to me, John Brown would have been worth his weight in gold just now. What a pity he precipitated matters and got himself prematurely hanged, end quote. So he imagines, like us, if John Brown had been alive when the war started, just what would he have done in the war? I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a alternate history to write someday. It's just John Brown commanding some unit of dedicated abolitionists or something, or maybe he rounds up some, some of these so-called contraband slaves and forms a guerrilla army in the South or something wonderful like that. That's, that's, uh, but we got George Templeton starting imagining, you know, John Brown in the front, li front lines, you know. I like that thought. It gives me great pleasure. He talks about the events in New York, the presidential call for volunteers, but this is a very, very patriotic Diary entry very much. Uh, he even says, "God save the Union, confound its enemies." He's confident that you know there's going to be this massive rising up of troops, and this is something we're going to see very much in the next set of documents. You know, the kind of enthusiastic war spirit, thousands of people stepping forward, going well beyond Lincoln's initial call of seventy-five thousand. You got Walt Whitman's great poem talking about uh, New York at the time. We'll get to that next time too, I think. Um, but this is a pretty good diary entry um, uh, about the spirit of the nation being sort of awoken by the beginning of the war. So next we have the New York Times. Uh, uh, I think this is Henry Raymond, um, who originally founded it. So he's a Republican Lincoln supporter. Um, 
And this is like the editorial page of the New York Times calling for unity of the northern states, vindication of national honor, the humiliation of, of this. This is the media response in a way. So we actually have a couple different um, newspapers here providing the media response to Fort Sumter. Um, the New York Times being very patriotic here and calling for the nation to wake up. Um, then we have the Pittsburgh Post-Democrat, um, which I guess a it's just a Democratic, yeah, it's a Northern Democratic newspaper supported Stephen Douglas, who was the Northern Democrat. Um, so possibly you might expect some anti-Lincoln rhetoric here, but no, he says, this editorial says, no, we need to support the war effort as well. Quote, the integrity of a great government must be maintained. Its power to punish as well to protect its citizens must be used. Political partisanship must now cease to govern men on the issue. Pennsylvania and Pennsylvanians are for the union. The government which the people have appointed and which is responsible to the people for its every act would be derelict in its duty as a government if it did not protect its property, its citizens, its flag, and its granted rights against all usurpers, all rebels, all traitors, external or internal foes, or of whatever character. We were born and bred under the stars and stripes. We have been taught to regard the anniversary of the American independence as a sacred day, on and on like that. So the media response seems to be pro-war, if you will. But nothing, you know, what you'd expect, I suppose. No, do we get Southern? I don't think we get Southern media responses. But we can imagine what they would say. So next we got uh, William Howard Russell, who we actually met before. He wrote, this is another kind of after-the-fact um, memoir kind of thing. He was a correspondent for the Times of London in America at the time. And he wrote this book, My Diary, North and South, about um, his witnessing of the Civil War. So this is like an Anglo-Irish re response, an, an English response to it, I guess. Um, and like the Mary Chestnut Diary, we have reflections on social life in Charleston. Um, he talked about like press freedom in the South, which is something I want to think about as we read, because so far the press accounts have been, at least since the war break breaks out, have been pretty unified, but we haven't got the Southern press reports. Um, but he said, my traces of dislike of the freedom of the press, which I, to my astonishment, discovered in the North are broader and deeper in the South, and they are not accompanied by the signs of dread of its power, which exists in New York, where men speak of the chiefs of the most notorious journals very much as people in Italian cities. In past times, might have talked of the most infamous Bravo or the chief of some brand of assassins, end quote. The media being described here as an assassin. And, and there's some kind of hesitation about freedom of the press. Um, so it's something I guess we want to keep our eye on, because certainly we're going to get press accounts of the war. Um, yeah. I don't know, a lot on the social life here as the war breaks out. Because that's, that's kind of what he would have been around. Um, he would have been seen. Volunteers in the streets. Some fun stuff here. Anyways. All right, so next we got uh, Charles C. Jones to his son. So these are planters, plantation owners. Now the son, Charles C. Jones, is the mayor of Savannah after the war. So these are pretty 
high up people. Um, and this is a pr praise for the victories of Fort Sumter. Again, kind of Southern nationalist perspective here. Uh, some anti-Lincoln rhetoric, quote, I never believed we should have war until after Lincoln's inaugural address. And not altogether then, thinking that there were some preventing considerations of interest and self-preservation and some residuum of humanity and respect for the opinions of the civilized world and the black Republican Party. But in this, I've been mistaken. Christianity and enlightening and softening influence upon the Sumian soul finds no lodgment in the soul of that party. Destitute of justice and mercy, end quote. I mean, I don't know how you can read the first inaugural objectively and come to that conclusion. It's such a conciliatory document. I mean, it's about as far as Lincoln could have gone at the time to say, we'll give you certain reassurances about the slavery issue if you don't secede. You know, he goes as far as he can because he was elected with a certain agenda and perspective of his supporters on these issues, but he went as far as he could. I don't know how you can come to this conclusion, right? But I guess the idea of Lincoln being an atheist was something that was floating around there. So this idea of a godless Republican, the godless black Republican Party. He even says here, that party is essentially infidel. If there are, and these are our enemies born and reared in our own political family for whom we are to pray and from whom we are to defend ourselves. The conduct of the government of the old United States towards the Confederate States is an outrage upon Christianity. That's, it's, the religious perspective here is so fascinating, I guess. Um, now, Charles C. Jones Sr. is a preacher, right? So he did evangelical work among slaves. So he must be one of these people who is making this religious argument in defense of slavery, right? Because that's what white preachers in the South tended to say to slaves was the Bible wants you to be slaves and it's your role in life and you'll be rewarded in the afterlife in heaven and all this. So a lot of blame on Lincoln. But it's another thing we want to keep in our eye on, I guess, are the religious perspectives of the war. And, you know, as hard as it is for me to understand, having read a lot of Lincoln, this kind of idea of him as this sat almost satanic figure, it's interesting that Southern religious people interpret it that way. And I think it's just another reflection of the partisanship and the sectional divide and the growing mistrust between the sections that he'd be seen that way. And of course, Lincoln's Christianity is a little dubious, I suppose. We, we talked about that in the Lincoln series I did a couple years ago. I think was that right when COVID began? I think it was. All right, next, John B. Jones, his diary. Um, so he's the editor of the Southern Monitor, which is a... So he, this is a really good perspective here. Interesting. So he's a, in Philly, but he was kind of a Southern sympathizer, and he wrote a journal called the Southern Monitor. So you can imagine what that newspaper did. It was a, a pro-Southern journal in the North. And he leaves. He has to flee to Richmond. Um, after fighting breaks out. Anticipating hostilities would break out, he left his home in Burlington, New Jersey, and arrived in... So he's writing a Philly journal uh, from Burlington. But then he goes to Richmond, where they just started having their convention. So they're having their convention when Fort Sumter is fired upon. I wonder if that influenced the decision in Charleston to fire on Fort Sumter. Um, and of course, just three days after Fort Sumter surrenders, they eventually vote for secession. And Arkansas on May 6th, North Carolina May 20th, Tennessee June 8th. Um, 
So he's reflecting on the, the, the issues as well. I just, I, I'm not going to say much about it. He's talked about the secessionist vibe in Virginia, but it's just interesting, I suppose, that you have a, this pro, pro-Southern voice, pro-secessionist voice even in, in Northern media environment. And then finally we have uh, John W. Hansen's uh, Reflections on the Baltimore Riot of April 1861. So this it was a pro-secessionist mob that attacked a Massachusetts regiment that was based there. Uh, they were on their way to Washington and they were attacked by the citizens of Baltimore. So it's just a reminder of how much pro-secessionist um, sentiment there was in, in Maryland. And it was kind of a not a clear thing that Maryland was going to stay in the United States, which, given the geography of the capital, would have changed the war significantly, I would imagine, um, especially at the time. It would have, I mean, that, that was a quantum leap moment in history, and it's, we're fortunate it went the way it did, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, so this is a reflection, but it's another after-the-fact kind of reflection. So, um, yeah, I guess I'll leave it at that. that. That kind of brings us to the end of this 100-page chunk. Um, the next 100 pages will take us from April to the rest of April to June. So we're going to get, this is kind of the call to arms period of, of the war. Then the next one will be centered on the Battle of Bull Run, the, the first battle of, the major battle of the Civil War. But the next period is the call to arms, I guess, after the war begins formally with the Battle of Fort Sumter. So anything really cool here? Uh, Jefferson Davis's and Lincoln's addresses, I think, are here. Walt Whitman, oh, first song for the prelude, uh, is great. Um, some military stuff. Some more diaries. Sherman comes back. Another George Templeton Strong entry. The, the writing of John Brown's body, that song. George Taney, that guy. Of course, he was the guy who wrote the Dred Scott decision. He didn't, he was a, I think he was a Southerner, but he didn't leave the Supreme Court. He stayed in the Supreme Court. And that's about uh, habeas corpus. So there's some big issues here, but we still got to wait for the major battles for another episode. But anyways, that's it. So I haven't been doing many episodes. I'm way behind. I think I'm actually out of episodes. Usually I have like 10 episodes in the can and I don't anymore. And I'm going to try to get caught up over the next couple of weeks. I've just been busy with my new job has still been kind of wearing me out. At the end of the day, I just don't feel like recording, you know, much. If I could find time in my office to do it, but I really can't. Um, what else? I've been oh moving uh, my family into a new apartment and been spending a lot of time with Ikea furniture and things like that. And I've been reading some long stuff for SFF audio podcasts. So I haven't had, I've, I'm kind of behind here. And, but I'm going to try to pick it up um, And now that things are a little bit calmer. So hopefully this is the start of a series of episodes I'm going to do in short order to at least get through this first volume and get some episodes in the can. But um, but that's that for now. Um, I guess that's all I really have for personal updates. Um, jobs are work is work, right? And I'm just not feeling it, unfortunately. I'm teaching seventh grade social studies now, and it's a very, like, our school here uses the California Common Core, which 
isn't the worst curriculum in the world. I mean, the ancient civilization stuff I'm teaching, it, it kind of gives a tour of the world. It's not the worst stuff, but it's pretty bad, I, I need to say. Um, you know, I, I come from teaching like AP world history, which is not great either, but it's a little bit better. But this, this stuff, I, I mean, I think there should be a thematic approach. I, I don't see how spending a few weeks on Egypt, a few weeks on India, does anyone any good? Uh, I would love to teach it like as a heroes and villains of ancient history theme, uh, like spend a few weeks on that, a few weeks on ideas, do a more thematic project-based curriculum, but I don't really have the freedom to do it. So it's, it's been a really, it's been a drag for me and a drag for the students. And that's just unfortunate. Um, but it's been, in terms of this podcast, it's been really dragging down my, my heart <laughs> and making it hard to do some things. But I, I did manage to do a recording of an audiobook. I, I did Mr. Adam a couple, like a year or so ago. And I just did Brother and Sister by Donald Lee Westlake, which is an incest book. Um, and you can find that on SFF Audio's podcast. Um, that's a public domain book. So it's, it's released. So that book now is an audiobook if you're interested. It's not great. It's just sort of interesting that Donald Lee Westlake wrote this book uh, under a pseudonym, Edwin West, I think. But you can check that out. And I might do another couple audiobooks in coming months, too. It's kind of fun to do and and whatever. But uh, that's it. I'll be around. Uh, I'm not going to try to slow down too much, but hopefully I'll catch up. But anyways, that's enough of my personal stuff. Uh, next episode, we'll get uh, deeper into the Civil War. And I really do like these collections. It's not a lack of enthusiasm that's keeping me from doing these. It's just like a lack of kind of energy. But hopefully that will change. So anyways, thanks uh, for listening. I'll see you next time. They hanged him for a traitor. They themselves the traitor crew. His soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah, his soul.